Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A group of rebels fighting for indigenous rights in Mexico caught international attention by staging an armed takeover of cities in a southern province. The group, calling themselves Zapatistas, made headlines for years after that first insurgency 30 years ago this month. They managed to raise awareness and move political winds in favor of people who felt oppressed for decades by the ruling majority in the country. We'll remember that first explosive uprising and the work since by the Zapatistas. Coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Advocates are making slow but steady progress to clean up a portion of the Columbia River that has been named an EPA Superfund site. Eric Tigodoff has more. Toxic pollution dumped by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers over 40 years at Bradford Island contaminated fish in the area, which are used as sustenance by the region's indigenous people. Rose Longoria is Regional Superfund Project Manager for the Yakima Nation. She says the contaminated site has been known for two decades, but only recently got Superfund listing. If it wasn't for Yakima Nation, Bradford Island would not be on the national priorities list. And even now, I believe that if it wasn't for Yakima, no one else would be pushing this hard to get this site the attention that it needs. There is a do-not-eat advisory for resident fish near Bradford Island. Organizations like Columbia Riverkeeper have created advisories in English and Spanish to let people know which fish are safe to harvest. Laura Shira is an environmental engineer with Yakima Nation Fisheries. She says resident fish near Bradford Island have the highest in the nation concentration of a toxic compound known as polychlorinated biphenyls, or PCBs. There's all these fishing platforms on the Washington shoreline, on Goose Island, on the Oregon shoreline, and those are tribal fishing platforms, and they're within like a quarter to a third of a mile of what we know to be the worst contaminated area on that north shore of Bradford Island. While it's been listed as a Superfund site, Yakima Nation and others in the region are still waiting on a concrete cleanup plan. Longoria says the PCB levels in resident fish make this an emergency. There are significant data gaps that need to be filled, but we need to do that as expeditiously as possible and determine the full nature and extent of contamination and determine the best way of cleaning up the site to protect human health and the environment. I'm Eric Tegadoff. One of the longest-running and most lucrative mid-distance sled dog races in the world gets underway in western Alaska Friday night. As KYUK's Emily Schwing reports, the field is deep and includes Alaska Native competitors who are making waves in the mushing world. Pete Kaiser is the second-winningest musher in Kuskokwim 300 history, with seven championships, and he'll have his dog team lined out at the start line again this year. You know, if you get in a position at some point during the race to win, then maybe it's your race to lose. But before the race starts, I don't I don't think of it that way. Competition in this year's race is fierce and includes last year's Iditarod champion, Ryan Reddington. It's quite the dog race with the competition here. So it's going to be um, whoever makes the top three is going to have to have a really good good dog team and a good execute, a good race plan. Richie Deal will also be on the sled runners vying for a second career win, but he says he's not sure if his dogs have what it takes for a top finish. So I don't know, it's hard to say, like, if you could um, put me in that group. 
but I, you know, if they look good, I'm definitely not going to back off the throttle. Per mile, the purse for the 300-mile sled dog race is one of the most lucrative in mushing, totaling $185,000. The trail takes dog teams through a half dozen predominantly indigenous communities on Alaska's Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta. This year's is the 45th running of the Kuskokwim 300. For National Native News, I'm Emily Schwing in Bethel. Apple plans to provide grants to the Sundance Institute Indigenous Program and the National Museum of the American Indian Variety Reports. It's part of the company's Empowering Creatives Program. The grants are intended to support and partner with Indigenous communities and amplify voices and experiences of Indigenous people. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Fry bread, that's the message. Support by Val's Fry Bread, providing her famous fry bread mixes and other products in wholesale and retail quantities at valsfrybread.com. Fry Bread that will take you home, available wherever you live. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A small rebel group brought indigenous rights to the international stage with an armed uprising taking over six cities in Chiapas, Mexico in January 1994. The rebels declared the Mexican government illegitimate and spent years battling federal forces before switching to more peaceful tactics to try and ease oppression of indigenous people. Thirty years later, the Zapatistas, or the Zapatista National Liberation Army, remain organized in Mexico, although their effectiveness has diminished. They're known by their trademark black ski masks and military uniforms. Today on our show, we'll talk with scholars on the legacy of the Zapatistas and how it transformed indigenous politics in Mexico. We also want to hear from you. What do you remember about the Zapatista Rebellion? Join our conversation. The number is 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also leave a post on our social media pages like Instagram and Facebook. Speaking with us from Phoenix, Arizona is Dr. Alan Shane Dillingham. He is an associate professor of history at Arizona State University and author of Oaxaca Resurgent. He's a citizen of the Choctaw Nation. Hello, Shane. Welcome back to the show. Halito, Sean. It's good to talk to you again. Halito. Also joining us from Phoenix, Arizona, is Dr. Alexander Avina. He is an associate professor of Latin American history in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University. Welcome to Native America Calling, Alex. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. And in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she is on sabbatical, we have Dr. Rosalva Aida Hernandez Castillo. She's a professor, senior researcher, and a feminist activist. 
Hello, Aida. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Shane, I'd like for you to begin our conversation and take us back 30 years ago, January 1994, Chiapas, Mexico. How did the Zapatistas capture the attention of people and governments all over the world? Sure. Um, so, you know, the Zapatistas, as you described in the intro to this show, um, are uh, organizing in the decades prior to 1994, but emerge kind of in a dramatic way on January 1st, 1994, when they um, reveal themselves to the Mexican public by attacking a number of municipalities in the southern Mexican state of Chiapas. Uh, they seize those municipal, those town um, uh, governments. Uh, they free uh, political prisoners who have been held and they um, destroy some land documents uh, as in, in an act to, to try to um, restore indigenous uh, control over those uh, lands. And Chiapas is a majority indigenous um, population. Uh, many different Mayan peoples live uh, in Chiapas, Tzotzil, Tetzil, Chol, and other uh, Mayan uh, communities. And so this was a shock to Mexican society when it occurred. Um, these um, guerrilla soldiers you know, wore these ski masks. Uh, they were relatively poorly armed, but they were tenacious in their uh, attack. And the Mexican government um, immediately uh, marshaled overwhelming military force to try to uh, put down the rebellion um, because these rebels had declared war on the Mexican government. And so this, I think, was a shock to Mexican society, but also um, it served as a kind of shock and for many people around the world an inspiration um, because this was a army of the dispossessed of poor indigenous peoples uh, in southern Mexico who were um, fighting um, for, their, for their rights uh, and fighting for a different world. And this was taking place in, you know, and I mean, we can talk about the context, but in, a, uh, in the mid-1990s in which the Cold War had ended, uh, revolution seemed off the table. And here was this indigenous rebel army who was countering that narrative and saying, we're here to transform society. Um, and so that, I think, was, you know, inspired people uh, around the world uh, to think that maybe another world was possible. And Shane, this initial rebellion in which these provinces, these cities were occupied, about how much time uh, elapsed from that initial rebellion on, on January 1st until the movement began to kind of stabilize and the Mexican government and military moved in? Yeah, I mean, so the, there's a, the, the rebels uh, attack um, these municipalities on January 1st and the kind of armed conflict in which there are, you know, um, um, firefights between the Mexican soldiers and Zapatista rebels um, endure for about two weeks of kind of active uh, fighting. Uh, and then the Mexican government um, declares a, a ceasefire uh, and tries to enter into negotiations. And so uh, that is, uh, you know, that is um, how the Mexican government responds, first through overwhelming military force, then through declaring a ceasefire. But uh, armed conflicts will continue over the next few years um, uh, from 1994 uh, on uh, as the Mexican government is trying to use negotiations to put down this rebellion, but at the same time is moving in large amounts of military personnel uh, and also supporting um, uh, groups that you would call kind of paramilitary groups of, of local 
uh, people in Chiapas who they, the federal government used to fight against the Zapatista rebels and their demands. Um, so there's this kind of um, relatively short-lived uh, kind of explicit armed conflict and then a kind of longer sustained low-intensity war between the Zapatistas, their communities, and Mexican federal authorities. And Shane, on a personal level, uh, I'm not going to guess at your age, but I'm going to imagine you were probably pretty young in 1994. What do you remember about that movement uh, at the time? And uh, did you realize then that you would ultimately devote a lot of time following and researching the movement? Yeah, no, you. Uh, I, I was a, a, a young person. I was, I think, in high school uh, um, during the Zapatista uprising. I uh, had the opportunity to visit Mexico uh, in 1996 and 1997. And so for me, you know, the Zapatistas as, you know, a high school uh, person, as someone, you know, my uh, you know, family is from uh, Oklahoma, grew up uh, with, uh, in the Choctaw family. Uh, our tribal politics always seems kind of, mm, how would I say, uh, um, conservative and um, relatively um, uh, kind of bread and butter issues. And here was this indigenous rebel army that was marshalling indigenous communities for this radical revolutionary project. And so for me, that was incredibly inspiring and intriguing. Uh, and uh, I wanted to learn more about who these masked rebels were. And I think that probably um, lots of young people around the world had that experience, right? And one of the leaders of the uh, rebellion was Subcomandante Marcos at the time. You know, he was this kind of eloquent spokesperson who uh, spoke in kind of poetic terms about the dispossessed and about people who had been ignored by society and that the ski masks, right, that the rebels wore made their faces invisible, but actually made them visible to the Mexican public for the first time. So for me, that was this kind of inspiration, and I wanted to learn more about it and kind of over the years found myself spending more time in southern Mexico trying to understand indigenous politics there. Now, you mentioned earlier that the Zapatistas were born kind of at the era when the Cold War was ending and the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, was uh, emerging and that played a role in the uprising. Can you tell us how that facilitated? Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, the Zapatistas were very explicit that they timed their uprising with the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement or NAFTA, right? That included the Mexican, U.S., and Canadian governments in this project to facilitate, quote-unquote, free trade. Um, and so those policies, which meant kind of the deepening of um, pro-market um, uh, policies in those three countries and the elimination of any barriers to capitalist free trade, uh, disproportionately affected indigenous communities, and in particular, um, the um, NAFTA required that the Mexican government reform uh, an article in its constitution that protected uh, national uh, resources and lands. And so uh, the Zapatistas kind of were directly responding to uh, the signing of NAFTA. And I think, you know, we're a key voice in trying to criticize in the 1990s what people described as kind of corporate globalization, uh, mm -hmm. a model in which uh, 
uh, not just these free trade agreements, but the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, that these in international financial institutions were really presiding over deepening inequality. And so the Zapatistas were one of many kind of responses uh, and this kind of an explicitly indigenous response. But, you know, in uh, a few years later, the World Trade Organization had its meetings in Seattle, Washington uh, in 1999, and there were very large protests there uh, that were eventually called the Battle of Seattle. And that was another something that I watched, you know, on the news as a young person and was kind of inspired and intrigued by. So, you know, their, re their rebellion is very much, they understood it as a response to NAFTA and a response to a, a model of globalization that was deepening social inequalities and particularly uh, continuing the kind of dispossession of Native peoples' lands and resources. January 1st, 1994, that was the date when the Zapatista movement uh, erupted on the international stage with the taking over of six cities in Chiapas, Mexico, 30 years ago, 30 years ago this month. And if you remember uh, that event and that series of events that occurred, I'd sure like to hear your perspective. What do you remember about it? Uh, and now, 30 years later, what do you think the long-term ramifications have been? Our phone number at the studio, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And of course, you can always comment on social media, Facebook, Instagram. You can use those channels too. Reach out to us, engage. We'd like to hear your perspective here at Native America Calling. There are promising signs. Congress may soon push through a tax credit that would save many Native American families money when filing this year's tax returns. That's one of the changes to look out for as you think about W-2s, deductions, and all the other work that needs to be done this tax season. We'll get expert tax advice to get you started on the next Native America Calling. Keshe. Happy New Year! Look at Debicoina Yayu Pachitonate canna Yayu Yana Itonanton exercise cananton you techi yates natonate canna Yamtonaqua mossi yantecuna nancolos teonatonate canata Easton Healthcare Takaf in Awanoa. Look at Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Tonapena Itulokanawe, Elaqua. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. We're getting insights into the progress and setbacks during 30 years of the indigenous rights movement in Mexico, championed by the Zapatistas. Join our conversation with a comment or question by calling 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. And a reminder, you can listen back to this show and past shows on all major podcast platforms, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to other types of native programming by downloading the NV1 app to your smart device. Dr. Alan Shane Dillingham is on the line. He is a professor of history at Arizona State University. And uh, Shane, thank you for that really, really thorough, comprehensive overview of, of the beginning of the Zapatista movement there uh, 30 years ago in 1994. If you would, tell us a little bit more about how the Zapatistas organized themselves and uh, if they incorporated any indigenous systems into that organizational structure. 
Um, yeah, I think uh, one of the interesting things about the Zapatista movement, and I'm sure our other guests can kind of flesh out this uh, question as well, is that they are uh, kind of a, um, a mixture of, I think, a number of different kind of political uh, and cultural traditions. And so uh, part of the early um, kind of groups or what we might call cadres of the Zapatistas are uh, a group of people who kind of come out of the radical left uh, after 1968, the repression of the student movement in Mexico City. A number of students uh, and young people around the country believe that uh, kind of armed struggle uh, inspired by different currents of Marxism would be the only way to kind of transform Mexican society. And so some of the people who are part of what will become the Zapatista movement come out of that tradition. Another tradition that's important, I think, in Chiapas at this time uh, are uh, groups of um, Catholic uh, um, activists and Catholic kind of lay community um, uh, leaders who believe in uh, a Catholic um, tradition that we could call liberation theology, right, that believes that uh, the, the Christian message is really a, a revolutionary message to stand with the poor and the dispossessed. And there is the beginning of what we would call a kind of indigenous theology um, in Mexico in which uh, indigenous communities in relationship to uh, kind of Catholic thinking start to articulate a vision for indigenous liberation. Um, and then, of course, there's the longstanding traditions in many Mexican communities of communal self-governance, right, in which if you are a member of a particular community, you have rights. Uh, but you also have obligations to that community, which is a very different form of uh, thinking about politics than a kind of Western or liberal form, which focuses on the individual. And so in many indigenous communities in southern Mexico, you would have uh, communal assemblies where people would make decisions collectively about uh, what they want to do as a community. And so those three different traditions, I think, are all really important and influential in shaping how the Zapatistas organize themselves. And uh, they have to organize themselves both as a, a military um, structure because they organize an armed rebellion, but they also organize uh, communities and um, create um, kind of uh, mechanisms that allow for collective input into community decision making. And so I think those three different traditions are really important in terms of thinking about how the Zapatistas organize themselves. Thanks, Shane. We're going to go to the phones now. We've got Colleen, who is listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hi, Colleen. Thanks for calling in. Um, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah. Um, I just uh, wanted to say that um, I think around that time, um, public access TV in the city of Albuquerque was a thriving community of volunteer producers at that time um, through Quote Unquote Inc. And, um, Freedom of speech, I feel like, was really supported by um, by that organization and by the city and through grassroots movements. So there were a number of shows, and I think the one that I remember the most is Zapatista TV, uh, was a TV show that was run by Yulinda Benali. And so um, she would bring people onto the show to inform the community about what was going on. But I think the trends of uh, public access television channels around the country, including the city of Albuquerque, 
has been that the government has really and um, mainstream media has really tried to find ways to um, sort of break up the channels, monetize them, defund them, starve them to death. And um, the city of Albuquerque actually uh, did a public a hostile takeover of public access television in Albuquerque back in 2012. Um, they broke into the building and um, well, and then they uh, changed the locks and um, had armed guards at the entrance. Um, so staff couldn't um, go in to do their jobs. And so um, ever since then, um, public access has changed in Albuquerque and um, other places too. I know there's a number of other uh, other places, but um, at that time, I think the producers, when the hostile takeover took over, there were about 3,000 active producers, 500, I'm sorry, 3,000 total producers, 500 active producers, and um, we were fifth in the nation for first-run new content. But now mm. the way that they have set it up, they have actually have a mainstream, um, someone who is an engineer for um, the mainstream channels who's operating the contract for a public access. But also um, the um, public access TV, everything is run through government access TV. So if a public okay. access TV producer is actually producing something to inform people about the public, they can actually um, censor that without notification. And so I think across the country, understanding how we can actually get information out to people is really important grassroots level, but there's there's also a trend to really try and censor people from that. And so that's my only comment. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Colleen. Appreciate that call and uh, also some of that interesting history there with regard to what was happening in Albuquerque at the time. Let's bring in Alex now. And Alex is also at Arizona State University, Associate Professor of Latin American History in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies. And Alex, um, earlier Shane shared... Uh, the uh, the uprising that occurred in 1994, but is my understanding that there was a lot of preparation and the Zapatistas were actually formed quite a few years earlier. Uh, can you tell us what was happening in Mexico during the 1970s and the 80s when the Zapatistas were organizing and developing? Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the important roots, I guess, that would later constitute the EZLN um, really begins in the late 60s, early 70s, as, as Shane mentioned earlier, with this moment in, in Mexican history where you'll eventually have something like 40 armed guerrilla movements that will emerge throughout the country as an, in an attempt to wage revolutionary struggle and overthrow uh, the, the then current Mexican government. One of these groups that gets created in 1969 called the FLN, the Fuerzas de Liberación Nacional, the, the Forces of National Liberation, gets funded by a group of middle-class uh, mestizo professionals, mostly centered in the northern city of Monterrey, but in other urban centers as well. Um, and they start to organize this, this, this guerrilla army um, that's motivated. It's, a, it's as, as Shane mentioned earlier, they're they have a heterodox revolutionary imagination that has, you know, elements of Marxism, revolutionary nationalism, and they start to to organize cadres in the in urban settings. But then they also have this idea to go and organize in Chiapas in the in the early 1970s. They send some cadres out into the into the Lacandon jungle. They buy a ranch and they start to create the nucleus of what they hoped would be a revolutionary army that would slowly be built over time. And, and this group, the FLN, in contrast to other groups that were waging war against the Mexican state, 
they didn't believe in like highly militaristic actions. Like they believed in, in, in arduous preparation. They believed that the revolution was imminent, so they just had to be prepared for when it arrived. Um, but once they got to Chiapas in the, mid, the early to mid-70s, they weren't able to make um, really effective bonds or, uh, or create effective bonds with, with local indigenous populations. And by 1974, uh, the Mexican intelligence services uh, infiltrate the FLN group and some other different cities. They torture people. They disappear people. And through these uh, terroristic actions, they find out that the FLN had a ranch in Chiapas, and, and, they, and the Mexican military raids the ranch and uh, kills most of the people who had been involved in, in that uh, preparation and disappears at least three of them. And to this day, we, know, we do not know the location of those three FLN militants. Um, this setback then will lead the FLN to kind of reorganize themselves, um, but they will not give up on Chiapas, right? So throughout the rest of the 1970s, they will continue to – they'll send cadres down actually to look for their fallen comrades. They will organize safe houses throughout other parts of the country, including in southeast, south, southeastern Mexico, again preparing for a, another revolutionary struggle in Chiapas, and a really, a really important moment occurs with the 1979 Sandinista Revolution in, in Nicaragua. And one of the impacts that that has on the FLN leadership is to think about, you know, moving away from a more Che Guevara-style guerrilla movement approach to revolution and to adopt what the FSLN had done in Nicaragua, which was like, you know, gathering your forces in silence and to have a, a people's war of national liberation. Um, and they start to recruit new, a new generation of, of militants, uh, both indigenous militants in, in Chiapas, but also in, in places like Mexico City. Um, as, as Shane mentioned, also two other important roots that will then come and, and form the EZLN uh, uh, tree. Uh, you, you had uh, the emergence of liberation theology in Chiapas in the 1970s, a very politicized uh, form of uh, interpretation of Catholicism that asks um, its believers and adherents to look at the structural causes and the political causes of, of things like poverty beyond just the cosmological explanation. And then another interesting element are these Maoist militants that go into Chiapas in the late 70s, and they start to organize uh, uh, indigenous peasant communities around issues of, of land reform and the recuperation of land, organizing cooperatives, organizing credit cooperatives. And um, the Maoists will eventually get kicked out, but they left highly trained and organized indigenous cadres and communities that were able then to interface uh, with the FLN when they come back into the region and start to set up uh, uh, this new revolution, this new guerrilla army that lists, that lists November 1983 as its official foundation date. Um, mm -hmm. and, it, you know, and this is where we get uh, the appearance of, of the more famous um, El Subcomandante Marcos, who will increasingly play an important role throughout the rest of the 80s. Uh, but by the time we get to 1990, 1991, what began as this like mestizo revolutionary project had, had, be, had been transformed into an indigenous revolutionary project that at one point will vote uh, uh, communally to, to go to war against the Mexican state. And that's how, what gets us to 1994. And Alex, uh, some of these groups that went in to organize back during this era, you mentioned the Maoists. Now, were these groups all from Latin America or were some of these from overseas? These are all mostly uh, Mexicans uh, from the Mexican cities. Um, so, it's, so it's basically... It was mostly just activists coming from urban centers and moving into Chiapas um, as a form of a political and, and revolutionary commitment. Right. Um, the, in terms of the Maoist, the, the religious aspect with, with the, the liberation theology, a lot of that had to do with the diocese of the, the main diocese or one of the main dioceses in Chiapas, San Cristobal de las Casas. 
and its bishop, Samuel Ruiz, who's known as the, the Red Bishop, because he, he was a big proponent of, of uh, propelling this, this more radical reinterpretation of Catholicism at the grassroots level. Thank you, Alice. We're going to take another call now. Chanupa, who is listening on Keeley Radio in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, uh, my little brother got me into this radio conversation, this interview today about the brothers and sisters down in Mexico, okay? And I wanted to contribute something. Back in the lateral part of the 80s and early parts of the 90s, I and the late Russell Means were down there. We helped the Zapatistas take on the, um, you know, the, the Spanish government and so forth and all the things that was going on. And again, we went back. But this time, Russell didn't accompany me. I went back with uh, Charmaine Weiss Carver and a few other uh, local activists that were really, that's when they um, they killed a lot of children and families right outside of um, Chiapas and, and the other one, uh, that little area right right in, in the town area. But the thing that we wanted to, I wanted to contribute was that in order for us to always take a stand, we got to believe in where our significance is. My blood from down in Mexico comes from my people that live up in the high mountains and they speak the language Nahua. And I hate that crass term, um, Mexicans. No, they're called Mexica people. They still have the indigenous language of Nahua, which I still have here in South Dakota on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. But when me and Russell went down there, we also met a real serious freedom fighter by the name of Brooklyn Rivera. And this man was very man, outspoken and very solid. And since that time, there has no, no other group moving in that direction because, like the gentleman said, everything came within Mexico. And a lot of them freedom fighters are within inside Mexico itself. So thank you for this subject, and thank you to uh, late Russell Means, and if Brooklyn and the rest of them are still out there, hey, keep this going, man, because, hey, we got your back up here in South Dakota, the Strong Heart Warrior Society. Hokahe, and thank you for this topic, Sean. Much love to you. Much love to you as well, Chanuba. Appreciate that call. And Alex, um, the name Zapatistas uh, comes from the famous Mexican revolutionary Emiliano, Emiliano Zapata. Can you tell us a little bit more about why the Zapatistas took inspiration from that figure? I think, you know, the, the, the historical pantheon of 20th century Mexican history is filled with, with all these revolutionary figures, right? And probably the most, the most compelling is, uh, for a variety of reasons has been Emiliano Zapata, right? This peasant campesino revolutionary from the state of Morelos who, who waged revolution against different governments from 1910 to, to, until he was assassinated in 1919. Um, he, he's, he then gets, trans, you know, there's like almost like a, a memory struggle over what he represented and what his ideals were and what he fought for throughout the rest of the 20th century between different grassroots organizations, revolutionary groups, communities, and the Mexican state that try to appropriate his image to gain legitimacy from, from kind of wielding his ideas and his image. So, I mean, he's, the most powerful symbol, I think, of revolution in 20th century Mexico. And so I think also the Zapatistas were trying to make a pretty explicit link that they were going to uh, redeem or fulfill the incomplete uh, revolutionary struggle that the Zapata had began in the 1910s 
with their own struggle in Chiapas in the 1990s. And part of the argument, if you if you read some of the, like especially Marcos's writings in the 90s, is this idea that the revolution somehow bypassed Chiapas, the original revolution, and, and part of their work was was to to, con to to make it manifest finally decades later um, in Chiapas in the 1990s. And combined with that is a longer uh, decolonial perspective that talks about how they've been living in the dark night of 500 years and tracing the origin of their struggles to 1492. So you have these really interesting um, historical framings that are coexisting. Um, one between a longest, a, a longer struggle uh, of indigenous resistance to European colonization, and also a, a more short-term one linked to the 1910 Mexican Revolution, which was the world's first social revolution of the 20th century. We're going to take another short break. When we come back, we're going to take another caller. And then we're also going to talk with Dr. Aida Hernandez Castillo and learn her perspectives on the Zapatistas movement. Give us a call. If you'd like to share in this conversation, join us. 1-800-996-2848. Support by Archaeology Southwest. Did you know almost all major archaeological sites in the Southwest have been looted or vandalized? Looting and vandalism impact indigenous people, past, present, and future. Every day, countless Native American cultural items are lost or damaged forever through looting and vandalism. Federal and tribal laws protect archaeological resources. More information about ending archaeological resource crime and how to submit a tip at savehistory.org and on social media at Save History. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, and there's still time to join this conversation about the Mexican indigenous political group, the Zapatistas. Our phone number at the studio, 1-800-996-2848. Let's take another call, and this is another listener who traveled to Chiapas, Mexico, and uh, experienced the Zapatistas movement firsthand. We've got Jen, who is listening online in East Texas. Hi, Jen, and thanks for calling in today. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate you taking my call about my part during the Zapatista movement. But first, I'd like to introduce myself as a Cherokee through my dad, whose mom was married to an Englishman. So I have a mixed, um, I am of that mix. It's important to state that now I'm 82 years of age with a long, important, uh, a long background in journalism. But the time I became involved, I was 53 living in Dallas, Texas. I had read about the Zapatista women in the Chiapas shutting down a power plant in retaliation to the government's heavy handed treatment of their people, uh, being very aware of how the U.S. government had treated my ancestors, I wanted to check it out just how the government uh, could do this to their in, uh, indigenous peoples. So there was going to be a demonstration at the Mexican consulate, and I'd never demonstrated in a demonstration, and I attended it just to observe. And of course, I found I was the only light-skinned person there, since I'm from that mixed race. And the consulate agent steps up outside the building wearing his suit and black patent leather shoes, and he motioned to me to come inside. I agreed only to do that if the others could come in as well. And, and, he, and he asked what I was doing there, and I told him I'd rather him ask why they were there. And he listened to their questions and comment. He said little, and then he dismissed us. It was a year later before... And there was no news in the paper about the Zapatista people 
when I had moved to Austin, Texas, and I decided that I would go to Mexico in 95 and quietly see for myself, not go as a journalist, but I wanted to see for myself. And I didn't tell my family I wanted to go to the Chiapa Mountains, but I told them I was going to San Miguel Allende, which I did, where the expatriates lived and many tourists. Um, and at that time, it was very safe, to, uh, very quite safe to travel in Mexico. And I made friends with the locals there. And when I revealed my plans to a young friend, he was so excited, he asked to come along. And we traveled premier class bus to Oaxaca first where we inquired from other young travelers returning from the Chiapas about the safety of doing that, and they encouraged us to go. So we met there with a lot of local people and fell in love with the area and the people and got closer to the problems and got a good feel for the truth. And whenever I returned to Austin, I joined a support group who also called themselves the Zapatistas. And we marched at the consulate, had demonstrations and educational meetings and raised money that we sent back to the people's effort. And I had put together a video of the women involved that was shown, that we showed on International Women's Day through the Austin Community TV station. And I think it's very important to note here, like the young woman said from Albuquerque, that having a local community, community TV station is a great way of getting news out. And I, I still um, wonder about the people and I've traveled many times back through to Mexico and have many fond memories of, of the beautiful Mexican indigenous mm -hmm. peoples. And thank you, Sean. Thank you, Jen. You and just a, quick, <laughs> yeah, just a quick question. How, how long did it take you to travel from Texas all the way down to Chiapas? And did you drive? Oh, no, I had, when, when I had taken a, a sabbatical from in between jobs in Austin, and when people heard that I was going to Mexico, they were they filled me in entirely on how to how to get to San Miguel and what to do once I got there, and so on and so forth. And I was using my high school Spanish at the time. Of course, I've gone back since then and studied Spanish. But um, it how long did it take me? Uh, well, from Austin, you go first to um, close to the border, and you get a bus there that goes into San Miguel directly. And mm -hmm. then from San Miguel, you take you learn to travel premier class buses. Okay. And here I uh, that, and then I ventured on after a few weeks into Oaxaca and then the Chiapas. All right. Okay. Well, that's a wonderful story, uh, Jen. Really appreciate you calling in. And let's bring Aida Hernandez-Castillo into our conversation now. She's been waiting patiently, a professor, senior researcher, and feminist activist. And Aida, appreciate you again joining the show. And as our caller, Jen, mentioned, indigenous women uh, have always been an influential part of the Zapatistas. Can you describe their role in the movement? Yes. Well, to begin with... Uh... To tell you that on January 1st, when the Zapatistas took over different municipalities, they also distributed a, a small newspaper that was called El Observador Guerrillero that had the Women's Revolutionary Law, La Ley Revolucionaria de Mujeres. And that was something unique that had never happened in any other revolutionary movements 
in Latin America or in the Americas in general. And this law was the result of a consultation in more than 400 indigenous communities to have the voice of indigenous women heard. And, and in this revolutionary law, they have certain different kind of demands. Some of the demands were directly to their communities in which they were claiming for a more important role in the community decisions to have the possibility to be part of the government, community governed bodies, because in that moment they were not participating, to inherit land because the inheritance system in indigenous communities as a part of a colonial legacy is very patriarchal, so women cannot inherit land. So they were demanding to be able to inherit land and also to decide with whom to marry, because also arranged marriage were very common in indigenous communities. And there were other demands directly for the Mexican state that had to do with health, with the health system, with a more accessible and not racist health system, with education. So they have they were talking through this women's revolutionary law to different uh, audiences, to a national audience. They were pointing out the racism of the of the Mexican society and the Mexican state, but also to the exclusions in their own communities. And, and I want to tell you that I was there, I was living in San Cristobal de las Casas when the Zapatista uprising happened. And I was working in a women's shelter, working uh, in an organization made with mestizo and indigenous women. We both were working together against gender violence. So when we received the Observador Guerrillero and saw the women's law, we were so inspired and so surprised mm. for these uh, demands, those specific demands of women. So we could say that the Zapatista movement was the same, the first armed movement in all the continent that put in the center of its agenda the specific demands of indigenous women. The Sandinistas in Nicaragua or the URNG in, Guatem in Guatemala or the FMLN in El Salvador, the Montoneros in Uruguay, none of those movements have ever, that were coming from a Marxist background, have ever put the specific demands of women in the center of their political agenda. All so right. this totally marked a difference of this revolutionary movement. And okay. this issue had influenced not only those communities that are under the Zapatista rules, because you have not talked about that yet, but uh, in the last 30 years, although we have not had an armed conflict, they have built autonomous communities in which they have created their own education system, their own justice system, their own medical system out uh, outside of the realm of the Mexican state. And in this uh, justice system, the women's revolutionary law is very important. But it is also a justice system that recovers the indigenous conceptions of justice. You were asking before about this, um, how the organization of the Zapatista takes place. And they were talking more about the guerrilla, the, the armed part of the Zapatistas. But we have not mentioned the importance of these autonomic regions until today, in which in a play, in a country marked by violence, we have not had one femicide 
in the 30 years under the territory of the Zapatistas. We have not had one disappearance in a country where we have 111,000 people disappeared. So it, as a, as a uh, society, society, how do you say? society experiment of community building, mm -hmm. the autonomic Zapatista regions are very interesting and women have a very important role in these uh, communities. Aida, thank you so much. And, and let's talk a little bit more about the present day Zapatistas movement, because although we might not hear about them as much in the news, uh, we don't see them on television. Uh, it sounds like they are still very active and still uh, play a very, very big role there in Chiapas with regard to to how that region is both politically, socially and even economically. Of course. Um, well, in the, in the last celebration that they have in just a few weeks ago, uh, it was a very important celebration. I was not able to attend, but I had been attending to many of their yearly celebrations there. I have been very close to the movement. I was a, a, a young undergraduate when this started, but I got involved very early in the solidarity movement with them. So I have been assisting and participating in a lot of their meetings in the, I have been in the autonomic regions and uh, what we saw in this last celebration uh, it was a new generation of indigenous men and women that were born under, under the Zapatista law so it's a new kind of indigenous identity that is recovering all their community values but at the same time are reinventing new traditions in which women have a very important role in education. They have created their own educational system because there is a huge critique to the Mexican public education, mainly for three reasons. One, because uh, it's always promoting uh, the project of modernization, of Western modernization as progress. So as teaching the kids how to immigrate and how to go to the urban cities to find a better life. So they think that the public education does not give enough tools to stay in the community and to build a better life in their own communities. So the new autonomic education, for example, includes sustainable agriculture as a very central role decolonizing history, how to recover the memory of the elders and to rewrite the history with the critique of the colonial legacy in Chiapas. It, it even includes Maya mathematics in their mathematical uh, system, how to recover all those knowledges. And uh, so they also have an alternative medical system in which midwives play a very important role and herbal medicine is being recognized. And in the justice system, in which there is a mix of the conciliatory process. I'm a legal anthropologist also, so I'm very interested in what is going on with justice. And uh, and by the way, just as a parenthesis, uh, I have been working for many years with a Native American scholar. She's from the Chicaso Nation, and I met him. I met her in the Zapatista territories 30 years ago. She was going there with a group of Native Americans that were visiting the Zapatista area, and she decided to stay. Her name is Shannon Speed, and we are comadres right now. We are very close. We published together a book in English that is called Dissident Woman, 
culture and politics, culture and gender politics in Chiapas in, that translate the women's revolutionary law to English for first time. So we have been working really hard to make bridges between the indigenous women's movement in Mexico and the Native American women's movement in the U.S. So uh, because of my interest in, in uh, legal anthropology, I have been writing and exploring what is going on with the justice system in the Zapatista communities. And it's very interesting because it's not a punitive system, it's a conciliatory system, but as a part of these conciliations, women have played a very important role in the, in the hearings where there is cases of domestic violence. The women's revolutionary law is considered, is considered now part of their customary law it has to be followed. And uh, the issue of re-education of men. What do we do with violent men in those communities? They don't want to send them to a Mexican racist and punitive jail that is uh, full of people that are being mistreated as slaves and that is not a solution. So what they are doing is to try to work with these uh, men that are violent in the domestic sphere through re-education, working with the elders, doing community work. And this example has been used in many other indigenous regions in Mexico, in which indigenous women are using the women's revolutionary law as a tool to change their own customary law. Okay. Because in the past, in the past when indigenous women wanted some changes in the communities, they're usually were accused of being acculturated or being westernized or being western feminists are just uh, brainwashing you. But now they have a tool that is their own tool and it's a women's revolutionary law that they have been using to change their customary law. All right, all right. Wow, wow, just really, really interesting information here on Native America Calling today and, and wonderful guests. Alan Shane Dillingham, Alex Avenia, and Rosalva Aida Hernandez Castillo, explaining to us more about the impact and legacy of the Zapatistas movement. Join us next week for another lineup of conversations about indigenous issues and topics. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Thanks this week also to Roman Garcia. Show McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves-Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm Sean Spruce. Have a safe weekend. Support for journalism that raises the awareness of child well-being to citizens and to policymakers provided by the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Building a brighter future for children, families, and communities. Information at aecf.org. Skugtash. Support by Ramona Farms. For over 40 years, Ramona's American Indian Foods has revived tepary beans, panoli, traditional wheat flours, and more. Delivery for your holiday gatherings. Available on orders placed at store.ramonafarms.com. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.